as we turn to uh, our our word in our passage today, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, and then 38 to 48. Uh, you can either find that in your worship folder there, or uh, it's, uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn there as well. Uh, we're coming to part three of a three-part, of a, 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 along a three-part message here. And so, uh, we're, yeah, we're coming to the end of it here. Probably some of you are thinking, wow, good, we're I'm glad to be moving on to something else. But this has been a long passage that we have in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're currently going through um, and uh, uh, our, our current sermon title, the series, is Being Whole Disciples. And it's about how Jesus is calling us as disciples to be following after him with our whole selves. But that's because, though, he calls us into a whole kingdom, a kingdom of wholeness and restoration. And so, before we, we turn to uh, this last section here that we have in this longer section in the Sermon on the Mount, which does go all the way to Matthew 7. Uh, Let's first pray, and let's ask for God's blessing on the reading of his word here. Father, we come to your word, and we pray that you would fill our sails afresh with your spirit moving and being active among us here. May we be attentive to what your word has to say, to the words of Jesus for us, that these were not just spoken to his disciples on a mountain 2,000 years ago, but that these are relevant and spoken for us as well. And it requires us to mold our lives around what, what he has to say. We also pray, though, that we would see your full character in here too. Not just your demands for righteousness, but your kind and benevolent and gracious character as well. Build us up for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. All right, so we have uh, whole person righteousness. That is our, again, what this, this three-part series, I guess you want to say a mini-series in the longer series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, part three here of whole, whole person righteousness. But first, let's read. Uh, uh, we're going to read uh, verses 17 through 20, which kind of establishes this greater principle of righteousness that Jesus has been talking about, and then as he's been applying it in six different ways, we're coming to the last two sections of that in verses 38 all the way then to 48. So this is God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Jesus has many words and sayings that if we take them seriously, they really don't let us get too comfortable. Certain phrases and ideas of his might, from one perspective, seem all like nice, ideal, ethical teachings. Perhaps that if people took them to heart a little bit more, then maybe life would be a little bit better. And so we take them and we put them in our pockets, content to carry along with them along with us, and then to pull them out, it seems convenient. But meanwhile, though, the rough edges of Jesus' words and his demands begin to rub and they chafe at us. We can't ignore them. And they start to become a bit uncomfortable or inconvenient. They start to open up raw places that we didn't anticipate before. The depth of their meaning and the real implications they have for us then become apparent. We realize that there's a lot more to them than just some basic ethical platitudes. That it's going to require a very shift in our way of life. And no matter who it is then, if we're going to take Jesus' words seriously, he's not going to let us get very comfortable. He's going to open us up and reveal some unpleasant things. And in the Sermon on the Mount so far here, Jesus invites his disciples into a new way of life, and he describes what this way of life then consists of. And the section, again, that we're finishing up here in the Sermon on the Mount is this invitation into a life of righteousness, of a whole person righteousness. But it appears, though, very quickly that this demand of righteousness is something else than we might initially think. We begin to see that it's not easy. It's not something that we can just simply put into our pockets and fit into our lives with a relative ease. Verses 17 through 20, it is this establishment again of this principle where Jesus reiterates that righteousness is of great importance in his kingdom. That if you want to be a faithful disciple, if you want to be considered great in his kingdom, then you will take righteousness seriously. In fact, you'll take it just as seriously as it's shown in the Old Testament laws. Jesus says he didn't come to nullify or abolish the law, but instead he came to fulfill it. He's the one that it pointed to. And he came then to open up its deeper meaning to us that was always there. He came to lift the lid on it, to show us that it's not just a bare literalistic reading, but that the law there, the righteousness in it, is a robust understanding of its greater principles. So that if you are then a disciple in the kingdom of heaven, and you're thus then called into this life of righteousness, then your righteousness should go deeper than that of the Pharisees and the scribes, that of the religious leaders, who really only took it at face value, and they missed the real deeper point of it all. Because the true depth and demand of the law The enduring quality which remains for disciples still yet today goes down to our inner being. It's a righteousness that gets at the heart, the whole person in alignment, the whole person oriented towards God. 
And so we get to the end of this section here. Jesus gives us a summary statement of this whole person principle at the very end in verse 48. He says, Be perfect as your Father is perfect. Now, perfect isn't quite the way exactly that we understand it, with these connotations of absolute perfection and flawlessness, right? I scored 100%. Rather, the word for perfect here in the original language gets at the idea of wholeness or completeness, not necessarily 100%, but of fullness, right? Word meanings sometimes change and morph over time. This is one of those examples here. But even so, though, still sometimes the way that we use the word perfect has these connotations of completeness to it. Think of something that you're working on that involves creativity. When you reach the end of it and everything is in its final place there and it's completed, you can finally refer to it as, oh, it's perfect. It's whole. And so what is this wholeness or completeness then in reference to God and then his disciples with righteousness? Well, it comes down here to this, that God himself is whole and complete. All that he does is perfect righteousness. It is a righteousness that flows from the deepest part of his being. It is who he is. He is complete. He is a whole righteousness. Nothing within him is mixed. And so disciples then are to live in this similar sort of singular devotion. They are to live righteously without mixed intents, with the whole person devoted body and soul then to God. And it is to flow out from us. It's to flow out from the heart. That means that our words, our actions, the intentions and the dispositions of a, of a disciple are to be in alignment, just as the Father himself is wholeheartedly aligned and devoted then to righteousness. And this has really been the summary of the past other two sermons that we've had. And so we come back to then Jesus' words here. And again, we realize sometimes they don't let us get too comfortable if we really take their meaning seriously. And this is one of those times where it's really poignant, especially if we consider them in the context of this whole person righteousness. Because it's going to require us to take a radically countercultural position and a stance that also runs counter to what our own fallen human natures are inclined towards. Jesus' final two applications of this principle of of wholeness and righteousness, both of them are concerned with how we regard those who are opposed to us in some way, how we regard our enemies, those who are against us, and so forth. It's one thing to say, love your enemies. It's something quite different than when we consider this in a robust way wholehearted way with generosity. Love for one's enemies and a non-retaliatory approach which goes beyond our actions but comes from a disposition of love, this is what Jesus is calling us to. So the point of this section here is this, that whole person righteousness follows Jesus in his regard towards his enemies. A whole person righteousness follows Jesus in his regard for his enemies. And perhaps these last two then here are the most revealing of just how deep this righteousness goes, how it needs to go, how countercultural it is. And so we're going to frame this sermon around this, this theme of revealing. What Jesus and his righteousness reveals. 
And the first thing that we see here is point one, Jesus reveals the law. Uh, we have it in the, the two sections. The first one in verses 38 to 42. Starts out, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the principle of justice that, got, that was found in the Old Testament law. It's not full, pulled from any one singular passage, but you see it in numerous places all throughout. And the idea, the main idea that it sets forward is that the punishment must fit the crime. That justice is to be meted out in a proportionate way. Perhaps not literally always an eye for an eye, but the compensation much ma- must match the degree of the wrong that was done for the justice, or for justice to be achieved. And this principle then certainly laid out what justice was. But it also had the intent of restraining all sorts of escalating violence and, and curtailing vigilante revenge by administering the proper and proportionate justice that was due. So it was a, this was a right for the people in the court of law. Now justice is good. Justice is important. It is a foundation to be pursued for all societies that exist this side of the fall. A society that operates without proper justice is one where evil gains a foothold and where they take advantage of the weak. The kingdom of God itself is built upon justice. When evil will be brought to an end and when the world will be reestablished by God's perfect equity among the peoples. But it's curious so that we have here Jesus' words in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Justice established as God defines it is good. And his justice is righteousness. But in terms of personal matters or in the face of evil, Jesus shows us a righteousness that is better than our own seeking after personal justice. And he says, that of non-resistance. Rather than taking matters into our own hands or asserting the rights that we have against those who oppose us, non-resistance and giving up what we consider to be due to us is better. In other words, it's better to be wronged than to enforce our right. Non-retaliation. Giving up our personal justice. Why? Admittedly, this is one of the hardest, I think, in here that, to wrap our minds around. But ultimately, the reason why is this. Because it trusts in the truly righteous God to judge justly in every circumstance. It's not passive, but it involves an active faith, an active trust. It's giving up our sense of of justice and entrusting ourselves then to the one who is truly righteous and who will someday then sort everything out, who will render justice properly and give equity. This is bound to raise all sorts of questions. So here's just something important for us to note right initially. This doesn't mean that we don't protect people. It doesn't mean that pursuing justice that's perpetrated against the innocent isn't legitimate. It doesn't mean that you can't seek justice in the court of law when it's necessary. Jesus isn't commenting on the principle of justice applied into the public sphere or the courts. He's only pointing this out towards our personal ethics. And anyways, this is most likely where it's to be found in our everyday lives anyways. Don't retaliate. Even when 
what might what might be considered to be in a, in a just manner, don't retaliate against those who position themselves against you. And this is really difficult to conceptualize. So I think it's actually really helpful that Jesus gives us four different illustrations then to show us a little bit more concretely about what this might look like. And the first one is being slapped and then turning the other cheek. And we might read this and think this is speaking of being harmed personally. But this is really, though, an attack on one's honor. Because assuming, as you would in this time, uh, that the assailant was right-handed, being slapped on the right cheek meant being slapped with the back of the hand. And that was a huge insult in this culture. The intent of it was to shame rather than to cause physical harm. And so the principle, an eye for an eye, well, what, would, what do you think here? Proper retribution then would seek after just restitution and compensation then for publicly insulting their honor. But Jesus, though, says to just simply accept the insult without response. Except the only response to give, though, is to give oneself to further insult by turning the other cheek. The second one we have is suing for one's tunic. The tunic was the, the lighter garment that was worn closest to the skin. You can think of light like an undershirt or something. In other words here, this is an instance of quite literally being sued for the very shirt off of your back. But Jesus says, though, to offer up your cloak as well. The cloak was the outer, heavier garment that you would wear. That according to Old Testament law, the cloak was the one thing that you had that no one had a right to in the court of law. No one could take your cloak from you. Yet Jesus says, though, offer up what you have that you even have a legal right to. The third example that Jesus gives here is of conscripted service. There was a Roman law in this time that soldiers could forcibly conscript the people of their subjected lands to carry their gear for a distance. And you can imagine then that these people absolutely hated this law. They hated that this rule that, that had a, a Roman soldier could tell them to carry their gear for, for a specified uh, amount of time. But Jesus, though, then says to do the unthinkable. You're, carried, you're called to carry a soldier's equipment for a mile? Offer up a second. Even though you have a right to not go a, another foot, renounce that right in the interest of your enemy. And the last one he gives is giving and lending. This one isn't hard for us to imagine. There's a beggar panhandling. There's someone in need pleading, I will pay you back. And Jesus says to give regardless of your own self-interest. Set aside the right that you have. Even if you know that you're being taken advantage of, allow them to. And admittedly, this is really hard. This is one that personally I find one of those ethical teachings that makes me pretty uncomfortable. Because it calls for some really bizarre behaviors here. Really difficult demands. And if Jesus wants a wholehearted righteousness like this, then this personally calls me into question. And so what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to be passive in the face of personal wrong? Are we to grit our teeth and bear it? The call here is ultimately this. Trust in the righteous God. Don't just sit and take it. But bring your inner heart to look up and trust to the righteous God. Let him sort it out with his own perfect justice that he has. His justice, anyways, is better than our own ideas of personal justice. 
As much as we like to say justice is blind, that's not always the case when it comes to our own personal matters. God will mete out his justice perfectly and in the end. And as we entrust ourselves to the Lord, then we are also then to seek after the good and interest of the one who is opposing us. At the end of Romans 12, the Apostle Paul writes these words, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. If your enemy is hungry, then feed him. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This echoes the call of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And trust yourself to God when others oppose you. Let him bring his justice and then seek after their good. Because in doing so, you will be vindicated over them for your righteousness. I think this was exemplified by Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement in the 1960s. When they were marching and campaigning for black people to be recognized as having the equal status that they deserved. And notably, King's theories drew from this ethic here that we see from the Sermon on the Mount here, the commitment to nonviolence and non-retaliation in the face of evil. And what happened? The entire country saw fire hoses and dogs unleashed on these people not resisting, and they were appalled. And the movement then gained an upper hand as their oppressors were shamed before the world because of their actions. And so no doubt this will lead to all sorts of messy situations and questions for us. So what are my obligations then? How do I go about this? What about my own interests? What do I do with the legal rights that I have? Well, first of all, the depth of Jesus' greater righteousness here isn't a singular action, but it's a principle with a lot of other applications that are going to require wisdom for us to really uh, implement depending on whatever the situation is. For example, how and when to give to someone asking for money. There's a lot of complexity in that situation to consider. But second though, if I have a question that causes me to hesitate, why do I think that I need personal justice or to hang on to my own right in that situation? Is there something in my response then that reveals my heart? This begins to get a little bit more at the whole person. We're going to come back to that in a moment, but we're going to next go to the last section here, verses 43 through 47. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, or sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And this is drawing from Leviticus 19.18, what Jesus is saying. Love your neighbor as yourself. Except in there, though, there's no reference to hating your enemy. So where does this, this second part come in? Well, it seemed to be a natural conclusion that teachers took over time, but still wasn't in and isn't in that law. You can look it up. But Jesus, though, says, But I say to you, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Sorry, I looked at the wrong verse. <laughs> but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Boy, that's a real stark difference there. Um, all right, Jesus says, though, here, as he, he opens up the law, to love your neighbor not by saying, hey, that, that section about hating your enemy isn't in there. No, he opens up this law here to love your neighbor by expanding its vision of who one's neighbor is. 
And common interpreters of the day took a pretty narrow understanding of what neighbor was. They restricted its definition so that then the command then to love your neighbor didn't apply to all the people that they didn't define as neighbors. But Jesus, though, gets to the heart and opens up the law. He says, love your neighbor and love your enemy also because they, too, are your neighbor. Love those people, love individuals who you find most difficult to love. Because in verse 44, he explains that love isn't merely an action. Love is also a disposition. He says, pray for your enemies. It has a desire to seek after the welfare of one's enemies. It's a kindness and a benevolence there that God has here. It involves praying for them. Again, have you ever tried to pray for someone you really don't like? It's because true prayer comes out from an inner disposition that is inclined towards their good and that petitions God on their behalf. Can you really pray for someone if you despise them? The perfect example that Jesus gives here of one who shows this sort of love for enemy is God. In verse 45, he gives gifts and blessings which are absolutely undeserved to the undeserving. He showers rain. He gives beams of golden sunshine to not only his people, but also to those who are darkened in their hearts and who are set against him. This sort of love here is a goodwill and a charity. It's a benevolence and a kindness. It expresses itself through generosity. Rain, sunshine, beauty, the enjoyment of all good things in life. He gives this to all people. He even gives this to his enemies. And he gives it to us all in concrete ways, not just expressed through words. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't even matter if they're thankful or not. This is what God the Father does. And this is what a disciple pursuing righteousness with the sort of whole person uh, righteousness does. It loves indiscriminately in real ways. Just like non-retaliation. And really like so much of what we've seen here in the Sermon on the Mount so far, this is a righteousness which is countercultural. It runs contrary to expectations. A love that is restricted to only whom we regard as worthy or people who run in circles that we find to be acceptable, isn't any different than the rest of the world. Verses 46 and 47. Jesus says that tax collectors and Gentiles, in other words, those people who are assumed to be outside of God's people, even tax collectors and Gentiles love and welcome their friends. And so simply doing the same thing isn't different than anyone else. What's so special about that? If that's the case, then our perceived righteousness really isn't anything special, and it's frankly just as common as the rest of the world. But Jesus' discipleship call is to love indiscriminately, just as God does, and doing so from a disposition of love, not just putting on a kind face. And this is also bound to raise some questions, just like the other command. How do I actively love someone who is so opposite or opposed to me or represents everything that I'm against? What does loving someone like that actually look like in certain situations? Are there specific times when it's legitimate to restrict our love for their good or to pull back our idea of who our neighbor is? 
Are those who are far off across the world, are they too my neighbors? And how do I love them? So Jesus reveals the law. We saw that there. And it it elicits a response in us. And the second point, don't worry, these last two are shorter than the first one. But our response reveals our hearts, though. Our response reveals our hearts. Because this is where those, those difficult questions begin to get a little more difficult. This is where they begin to open up our hearts. When you sat listening to Jesus' words of non-retaliation and setting aside certain rights or self-interests, and we began discussing the wisdom necessary in those situations that, where it's difficult to apply to them, what were the first thoughts that entered into your mind? Was it how to move towards them? Or perhaps they were attempts to find exceptions of bringing up contrary points or excuses. See, in moments like that, what is the inclination that we have? Whatever it is, that's what reveals the heart. It's the same thing with loving your enemies and seeking to do them good. Who do you consider to be your enemies? Who comes first to mind? For some of us, I'm sure it's those who are on the opposite side of the socio-political spectrum than we are. You can insert whatever term or moniker you want about who is, running, who is ruining our country and infiltrating the church. And then what's your view of love? What does it mean to love those people, those enemies there, with a kindness and a benevolence and a generosity those, for those people that you see as enemies and you disagree with? Is love first and foremost corrective? Is it to correct them in their views, to bring them to your side, so that they will see the light, so that then you will embrace them, instead of first considering how to benevolently care for them? Again, the response of what it looks like to love reveals our hearts. See, these words of Jesus aren't only hard for us to grasp. They're hard for us because they open up parts of our hearts where we really don't want to go. Not in the way that Jesus calls us to. Having to reckon and reconcile our attitudes with what Jesus says isn't comfortable. They're a light that shines in parts of our insides and it searches every darkened corner to see what's in there. And it can be painful. When someone says that they love and follow Jesus but then they come to the realization that not everything on the inside aligns with exactly who he's called us to be, it's hard to take. That's deeply humbling. But see, though, this begins to get at this whole person righteousness that he calls disciples to. And that if you're a disciple and you are serious about following him, then these shouldn't be questions for you and I to run from or to push aside. Because as this reveals our hearts we begin to see how impoverished we are on the inside. And that maybe we aren't quite as wholehearted or perfect as Jesus calls us to be. But these times are also moments of grace because he shows just who he is to disciples also. That the, the righteousness of a disciple doesn't come from within us. The righteousness of a disciple flows into us by the Spirit of God to change that person from the inside out. So point three then, a whole person righteousness reveals God's character. 
It reveals God's character. The righteousness that Jesus calls his disciples to reflects who God is. And we, can't that, and we can't forget that disciples also need to be on the receiving end of his character just the same. Because we are fallen, broken sinners who can't will our way into righteousness. We need to see who God is for us also. And we see this revealed most fully in Jesus the Son, who is the perfection of this wholehearted righteousness for our sake. That he embodies this righteousness of non-retaliation and of love for enemies in concrete ways and on behalf of his people. Jesus embraced non-retaliation and he set aside all his rights and the justice that he deserved as that we des- that he deserved as he willingly suffered on the cross for sinners for his enemies who deserved the full justice of wrath. Jesus was struck on the cheek for his claims to truth when he was put on trial. Yet he responded with humility. He went quietly like a sheep to be slaughtered, even though he was the most innocent man ever. Never once brought up his rights. While hanging on the cross, he gave up his cloak willingly to those who crucified him. Though he was a son of God and who could have called down armies of angels to his rescue, he gave up his just rights and he entrusted himself to his father that he would provide him vindication in the end. Jesus also showed perfect love for his enemies while going to that cross. That he didn't die for good people. Jesus died for sinners. He died for the people who hated him. It was the most undeserving thing imaginable for undeserving people. But he did so out of love. To rescue them from their sins that made him, that made them his enemies. To atone for everything inside them that hated him. And then to welcome them as friends and invite them into a beautiful life with him. See, disciples need God in all of his righteousness and his whole character just as much as everyone else does. You may not think that your enemies are deserving. And that might even be true. But instead of looking outward, we first need to turn the mirror on ourselves. How deserving of God's grace are you? How deserving of God's grace am I? See, it's not a matter of whether or not we deserve it. It's a matter of who God is for, deserve, for undeserving people like me and like you. See, disciples are not only recipients, though, but disciples are also invited into living this cross-shaped life that reveals the character of God. When disciples live out this righteousness that Jesus calls them to, they reveal who God is. When they put aside their personal rights to retaliation, they testify that there is a greater judge who will reckon more perfectly than they can. They reveal the humiliation of the Son of God who is willing to undergo such an indignity for the sake of others and that he would do so out of love for them. We see this most explicitly in verse 45. Disciples are like children who reflect the Father's generosity. Children bear characteristics of their biological parents. They look the same. If you hang around them long enough, you start to see that they act similarly. And Jesus says that loving your enemies with extreme benevolence to even those who don't deserve it, being generous with what we have, reveals the gracious, benevolent kindness of God that he has for the undeserving. If we want people to know and to love Jesus, 
then let's show them a little bit of who he is by reflecting his character to those that are around you. We say we want our neighbors and our community to know him. Let's show them a little more about who he is with a love that comes from the heart, which has experienced it firsthand. Whole person righteousness isn't easy, but I hope that we don't see it as a burden. It's difficult, and it certainly requires us to come in constant mercy, asking, or uh, to come in, in asking for constant mercy from God, because we need an inner dis- disposition change. But disciples, though, are also called into this sort of righteousness as an invitation, a life that's centered around Jesus, that is beautifully radical. Then, as it follows after Him, let's pray. Dear Jesus, your words and your demands that you give us here are difficult. They're difficult for us to understand, to wrap our minds around. They're difficult for us to apply. We need wisdom. They're difficult and also, though, what they reveal about us. So, Lord, would you change our hearts? Change us from the inside out so that we might better reflect your character. Change us also, though, by experiencing your character by experiencing the the goodness and the the generosity the, the benevolence that you have and you have given us in jesus here may that be that which changes us that we would stand not upon upon our own self-righteousness but be changed by the righteousness of jesus for us and with that then please help us to become more faithful disciples those who are humble those who love you more those who love our enemies more those who look to you in greater and greater faith in more and more difficult circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen.